If you have your Bibles or phone apps, you can open to 1 Timothy 4 as we uh, move our way through Timothy. I had no intention of desiring to be a witness for Christ uh, two Sundays ago when I was traveling to Colorado for denominational meetings. Um, And it was late um, at night. Well, it wasn't that late. It was about the time of when the Buffalo Bills beat the Chiefs. Remember that a couple weeks ago? I want to see the Bills and Chiefs play. They're two of my favorite teams. Bills would be my uh, 51% team. Chiefs would be 49%. Well, I, was, I wanted to stop um, and, and watch the game, but there was nowhere to stop in the middle of western Kansas. So I was trying to listen to the AM radio. It went in and out, and I couldn't get it. And so finally, I made it all the way to Lyman, Colorado, and uh, there are a few hotels there, and so I went to the lobbies to pretend I was a hotel guest and watch the game, but they were all on news stations. There was a restaurant, as I was leaving Lyman, though, um, it was a, like a sports bar and restaurant, and so I went in there, and sure enough, they had the multiple TVs there, but all baseball games were on except for behind the bar, and so I was like standing there watching the game a little bit. And some guy said, hey, you can sit here, buddy. So I sat at the bar, ordered a pizza and a, and a, and a uh, Dr. Pepper, Diet Dr. Pepper. But I had three Diet Dr. Peppers. Um, anyway, I was there and watching the game. I was focused on the game. About a half hour later, some dude pulled out his phone, handed it to the bartender, said, take a picture for me and my soon-to-be ex-wife. <laughs> and I thought, huh, that's interesting. And so I nudged him and said, what do you mean soon-to-be ex-wife? Which began a conversation. I'm not sure he'll remember t- the next day. <laughs> but actually, um, we, be- we talked the rest of the time during the game. When the game was over, I ended up uh, po- holding his hands and praying for him because it turns out he didn't want to be divorced, and he was really broken, and he was acting bo- boisterous and arrogant at the bar, but he was really, really broken. And so the Lord opened up the doors. I had no intention of doing that at all. I stopped for one reason. He even said when he found out I was a pastor, his jaw about hit the floor because he didn't know I was a Christian, much less a pastor, until nearing the end of our conversation. And he said, what made you sit here? Why are you sitting here right next to me? And I said, to watch that game on TV. I said... But then secondly, remember you invited me to sit here, and then thirdly, it was a God appointment, and I didn't intend for it to happen. Well, the, the outline this morning is on your bulletin. It's to preach God's Word, which means to teach, share God's Word, to practice God's Word, and progress in God's Word. You know, Paul entrusted Timothy um, with this church in Ephesus, that's about 10 years old or so, or maybe more. Not very old. And in, in Ephesus, false preachers, teachers were infiltrating the church. Uh, they were influencing especially the new convert women in the area, and, and men too, both. Um, and these false teachers were teaching Gnosticism, and we'll, we'll, I'll share that about that in a little bit. But um, they were in, in Ephesus, and Paul said, Timothy, you got to preach God's word. You need to practice it. You need to progress in God's word. Paul had foreseen that the, these false teachers would be coming. All the way back in Acts, we read the context of this church in Ephesus as written about in 1 Timothy. 
In Acts 20, Paul says, I know that after I leave you, Timothy, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Paul refers to these false teachers as savage wolves. Uh, This is how God views people who lead people away from the truth of God's word. And so we read about these false teachers in 1 Timothy 4 again. Paul writes to Timothy, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Paul refers to this time, later times, these late, in the later times, well, later times were being fulfilled right there in Paul's writing to Timothy. We often, when we read later times in Scripture like this, or last times, we think of the end times, but Paul didn't have that in mind at all. He had in mind the time before, after Jesus' first coming at Christmas and then his second coming at the end of time. We can't confuse later times with end, the last days. Paul refers to elsewhere. <clears throat> in fact, Peter writes it this way, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world but were, was revealed in these last times for your sake. Peter's saying this Jesus who you've heard about or have seen These are the last times. Because our enemy is a liar, false teachers were around in Paul's time, and they continue to be around and will always be around. John refers to them as antichrists with a small a. There will be many antichrists. So how do we combat this this false teaching that's purveying, even in our world? We need to preach God's word first. Uh, This farmer was sitting under a tree one day on a break, and he happened to look up and he saw in the sky two distinct letters in the clouds, PC, and he took it as a sign from God. He sold all of his equipment, he sold his farm, and he went to preach Christ, PC. And in the course of one sermon when he was preaching, a little bit later, a neighbor came up and said, hey, uh, hey friend, uh, you're really not a good preacher, you think maybe God intended to tell you to plant corn? Well, the point of that is some are called to be preachers, some are called to be teachers, but we're all called to be teachers in one way or another. I should say some are called to be preachers, but we're all called to be teachers. If you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle, upperclassman in high school, you're called to be an example and teach those just by your words, your actions. The Covenant Church has always been Bible-centered, though. It's always preached God's word from the very inception. In the late 1800s, these immigrants from Sweden, they came over here and they wanted to leave the state church in Sweden that was dead orthodoxy. And they had this newfound faith that was influenced, they were influenced by a revival, the, the Great Awakening and the Pietist movement. And as they immigrated in the States, they asked two questions. Where is it written? Where is it written? Show me. If you believe what you believe, show me where it's written. And then secondly, how goes it with your soul? 
very personal relationship with Christ. That's the, uh, the, for, uh, the, the founders of our denomination. So how can we discern a teacher of truth versus a false teacher? Uh, scripture clearly tells us by how we think of Jesus and what we teach about Jesus. John said it this way, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. And this is the reason why the Apostle Paul, in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, he ended with this magnificent uh, hymn or, or creed about Jesus. He said, This is the mystery of godliness, and it's great. He, Jesus, appeared in the body, he was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations and was believed on in the world and the world was taken up in glory. There were false teachers of Gnosticism. These Gnostic teachers that were beginning to penetrate the churches were saying, you know, there's this prophet teacher named Jesus, but he certainly isn't God the Son. They denied the incarnation. They denied that he was anything that special. In fact, when he died on the cross, they said, okay, if it were truly a God-man, then the God part of Jesus departed from Jesus before he was crucified on the cross. And that spirit over, oversaw what was happening to the man Jesus on the cross. They denied the incarnation of Jesus. Some denied um, the substitutionary death of Jesus for the sins of the world. He was just a, a good man dying on the cross. Um, they denied... In other words, what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, and what we celebrate at Easter, his death and resurrection for our sins. That was false teaching. But the false teachers didn't stop there in verse 3. They forbid people to marry. If anyone desired to reach their highest spiritual goal in life, then it's better that you don't marry. Then you could be more for God. Shouldn't surprise us that these teachers were attacking the institution of marriage for Paul himself wrote in Ephesians that marriage is a great mystery concerning Christ and the church. In other words, Christian marriage gives us the best picture on this earth how our relationship as the bride of Christ relates to the groom, Jesus Christ. And so marriage as defined in the word of God continues to be attacked and redefined even in our fallen world today, in so many different ways that I need not illustrate. Well, these false teaching teachers also addressed various food rights, and we think, what's the big deal about food? They, and they order them to abstain from certain foods, even though he goes on to say, God created everything to be good, and we should receive it with thanksgiving. Well, this teaching smacks of the ever-present presence of legalism in the church you know a bunch of rules about foods the more rules a church can line out the more control its leaders can have over the people and oftentimes false teachers want to have not often always false teachers want long for that control over the people so the more rules we have the more control this teaching smacks of that. Anytime, anything can become legalistic in the church. You know, anything can be made into a rule of righteousness, so to speak. Uh, growing up, if I got to be honest with you, 
I was a little, good little legalist growing up because I thought my spiritual life consisted of not swearing and not partying. And so when I entered into middle school and high school, when all my friends began to partying, have, go to beer blasts and start to drink and experience alcohol and such, I, I didn't do that because I wanted to be righteous. Nor did I cuss. And, because, and I thought of myself as really a righteous, cool, mature Christian. Never mind the fact that I was very self-centered. I lived my life for me, myself, and I. I overlooked the needs of others. But hey, at least I didn't cuss and I didn't drink. Legalism. We're not made righteous by the rules that we keep. We're made righteous through Christ. So Paul instructed Timothy to combat this false teaching by preaching the truth of God's word. And the truth is Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life. In verse 6, he said, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus nourished on the truths of faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. And so when Paul preached and when he taught, we just notice a pattern, and I, I kind of deal with this too as I try to work up teachings and sermons. Do I want to encourage people? Do I want to challenge them? And it, it's not either or, it's both and. It, it's sort of like street signs, you know? Some street signs give us direction, like at 37 miles to Salina, Kansas, you might see a sign out there giving us direction or a speed limit sign. Or other signs are warnings like uh, falling rocks ahead or bridge out ahead. Warning. And so good preaching will include both warning and instruction or direction. But it's not, it wasn't sufficient for, Christ, uh, for Paul to say, hey, you've got to preach the word he goes on to say, you need to practice the word as well. We must practice what we preach or we'll be accused of what Jesus accused the religious leaders. Uh, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, Jesus would often say of the Pharisees. Verse 7 then, Paul writes, Have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Paul refers to this training, this physical training, twice in this passage, which was an athletic term. And we can all appreciate this type of training living in the American uh, 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 exercise-crazed culture that we live in, you know? How many remember Jack LaLanne in the day on TV? One of the first, right? And the rest of you, you can Google him. Or Jane Fonda and her aerobicized uh, VHS tapes. And on and on, you know, you go to any store and you'll see different uh, exercise things. Because we idolize as ath the athletes we almost worship them and we aspire to be like these in-shape celebrities. And so we invest an enormous amount of time and energy and resources into getting healthy and fit. We do, you know, with supplements and eating right and exercise. And, and that's not bad. Paul says physical training is of some value. It's a good thing to treat the temple of the Holy Spirit with honor in that sense. But if our physical training is to the neglect of our spiritual training, 
then we'll, we'll have fallen short. Paul goes on, Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. We can reach the epitome of our physical fitness and fall dismally short of experiencing all that God intends for us, the reason he chose us and created us. We can gain the whole world yet forfeit our souls. Um, our pursuit of godliness will benefit others, he says as well. Um, not only in this present life, but in the life to come. It has great benefit to do spiritual fitness, if you will. In verse 10, uh, this is why we labor and strive because we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially those who believe. Paul says we labor and strive. If you look up those words, they mean to, to agonize. Again, we agonize in the weight rooms or on the treadmills and we're sweating, and we're like, oh man, I feel so great, and I'm going to post my picture on Facebook and let the world know that I worked really hard. Do we agonize in the same way about our spiritual life, pursuing our spiritual health? We have no greater purpose during our short stint on this earth than to pursue Christ and offer his hope to all people, especially those who belong to the family of Christ. Verse 11 Command and teach these things, Timothy. We're called to make sure Christ is taught to all people, especially those who believe, namely, the family of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and also our immediate family. We are the primary teachers. We don't drop our kids off to be taught by the Sunday school teachers, and that's it, or, or the youth group leaders. But we are the primary spiritual uh, teachers of our children. Um, and I want to thank you for making that so in your families. You being here this morning is evidence that we're making this a priority on a Sunday morning. When most of our city's not in church today, you're here to worship God and to sit under the authority of his word and to hear him speak to you. And, and you demonstrate that by being consistent um, and in, involved in church. So thank you for doing that, and, and thank you for being a Christ-centered family uh, in a Christ-centered church. But a lot of people um, I've known in the day, especially my youth ministry days, say, you know what, I don't really want to force church on my kids, because if I do that, then, you know, they'll just burn out on church, and then they'll grow up, and they'll rebel against spiritual things. And I don't want to force them. Well, okay, that's like saying, I don't want to force my children to eat healthy because when they grow up, then they will rebel against healthy food and, and they'll eat junk food when they become adults. And, and I don't want to force them to do that. Or it's like saying, man, I don't want to force my kids to go to school or, or, or force them to go to practice that, on the team which they play. I, I don't want to force them to do that because if I do, then, man, they'll have just a distaste against the team and against school, and, and they'll hate school, and, and so I'm going to let them choose and have the freedom. Well, well that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But that's the attitude. You know, spiritual things often take a really low priority, even in church families, for fear of trying to turn their children off. No, we're to teach and command these things to our children and to our grandchildren. And we're their primary example in their life.
we teach much more loudly at home than through our actions, than uh, through our, even through our words. What is, uh, how's the saying go? Um, uh, more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. Um, and so by our examples, Paul encouraged Timothy to eliminate any excuse or obstacle that may come, that would come against this priority of making Christ priority, teaching God's word. And so Paul says, Timothy, I know that you're young, compared to me especially, but don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But Timothy, instead, set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, which they did in those days, because people didn't own copies of this, to the preaching and to the teaching. Timothy, I know that you're intimidated. I know that I feel like it feels like I'm leaving you high and dry, Paul said. But no, no, um, you are to set an example for all the believers, Timothy. You are equipped, you're prepared, and do so in your speech. Do you want to know what a person truly is like on the inside? Then sit down with them for coffee or in a group and listen to what they talk about. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Set an example in your speech. Timothy, set an example in your conduct. Uh, the CEO of a company, he, uh, this is, how, this is his practice for interviewing potential employees. He set them in the waiting room, and the secretary was in the waiting room as well. And in the inner office, the CEO would uh, always intentionally make the interview 15 to 20 minutes late, and which meant they had to sit out in the waiting room for 20 minutes or so. And so afterwards, after the interview was concluded, the boss would go out, Ask the sec secretary, so how did the person treat you when he was waiting for 20 minutes? What was his attitude like? And he always learned much more about a person by how that person responded to having to sit there than in the course of the interview itself. Set an example in your conduct and in your love. You know, we can speak God's truth while lacking God's love. And oftentimes, young adults, um, according to the things that I read, they don't want to come to churches like this because the perceived notion is that the people in the churches are just critical and judgmental and hypocritical, and they can rattle off names of Christians who are that way. It's sort of like a young woman who said, why would I want to go to church? I feel bad, about, bad enough about myself already. Um, we, we can't have that perception. We have to speak the truth, but it has to be filled with the love of God. Set an example in your faith, Timothy. Uh, a, faith means a surrendered life to Christ. And then finally, set an example in your purity. And of course, we immediately think of sexual purity, but this word encompasses so much more. It's a singleness of pursuit. It's a Christ-centeredness. Seek first the kingdom of God. You know, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Those who pursue God more than anything else. Verse 14, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. 
We're all ministers. Uh, We've all been given a spiritual gift the very moment we receive Christ. From God's very throne room, he said, I'm going to give my new child this spiritual gift to be used to equip the body of Christ. That's where they will find their meaning and their purpose and their fulfillment when they utilize the spiritual gift or gifts that I'm bestowing upon them. Timothy, use your gift wisely, empowered by my spirit. And then finally, the one who calls us will equip us. But we must first cultivate our gifts. We must progress in God's word. Uh, Verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. The verbs in here are packed with passion, intentionality. Be diligent. Give yourself wholly without a divided heart. See, your, so that may, they may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine. Examine yourselves, he's saying, and persevere in your life and doctrine. Very intentional if we're going to progress in our faith. A minister served as an interim pastor of this church. He'd only been there three months in this small church. Um, and so one day, though, on a Sunday morning, he went to this coffee shop, and he, was, he opened his Bible and his notes, and he's reading over his no- sermon notes. And then someone over here noticed that uh, this guy had a Bible, and he said, hey, what are you, a preacher or something? And the guy looked up and said, well, as a matter of fact, I am. And uh, I served the Christian church right down the block here. And the guy puffed up his chest and said, hey, I go to that church. He said, you do? Well, I've never seen you there. And the guy looked at him like incredulously and responded, "Um, I said I was a member of the church. I didn't say I was fanatical about it. You know, when we stop progressing in our faith with a pure pursuit of Christ, then we start regressing in our faith. Sort of like riding a bicycle uphill and pedaling and pumping. When, once you stop pedaling, then you start going backwards. Or maybe a better example would be you're rowing a canoe or, or paddling, paddling a canoe, rowing a boat or kayak upstream. And once you just give up and stop rowing, then all of a sudden your boat starts going downstream. That's what happens to us as well uh, when we stop pursuing and progressing. We need to always be growing, learning, and progressing. We must allow God to do the work in us before he can do the work through us. So Paul, the great leader and example, never stopped learning, growing, or progressing in his spiritual life, even in the latter years of his life. We read in Philippians, Paul writes, not that I've already obtained all this, spiritual maturity, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Which shows me the humble attitude of Paul the Apostle, this great leader, this founder of many churches, this great apostle. He was still very, very humble. He's saying, I haven't arrived. I'm not even close to it. In fact, I'm less than the least of all the apostles. We should be concerned when we stop, we or others stop reading and studying God's word or stop 
going to Christian formation classes or, or discipleship groups or Bible studies. We should be concerned because when we're not progressing, we'll start to regress. And we should also be concerned when we stop learning from one another in the body of Christ, when we have this attitude that it's just me and Jesus, you know, I'll sit at home and I'll just read my Bible and it's just me and him and I'll do my own thing and my own time and, and he loves me unconditionally, which is true, but he created us for the body of Christ. As iron sharpens iron, so we sharpen one another. We sometimes have the tendency to become so set in our ways that we don't take the opportunity to converse with others who may challenge us to grow in our understanding. We shouldn't be threatened either when people disagree with us, either politically or spiritually or theologically. Um, I have great relationships with many pastors in town. I got to tell you, in our course of our conversations, we always discern that we have theological difference about this or this or this or this or this on matters that are non-essential to eternal life and salvation. They're all important issues that we discuss, and we agree on the essential issues, that one God, one Savior, etc. But we have differences. Every denomination has its unique slant and emphasis and difference. And I got to tell you, we sharpen each other. I've learned a ton from my uh, fellow pastors as we meet together and discuss things together. And I've grown immensely. If I may not have changed my theological conviction on many things, but I've learned certainly to be sensitive uh, to others who think differently. I've learned to appreciate others who think differently than I do, uh, who land in a different place, if you will. I I've learned to be more compassionate toward those who may not see eye to eye with me, rather than say, oh, those Republicans are or Democrats are just so stupid and so I cannot believe, or whatever, you know, politically, or, or those anti-vaxxers or those vaxxers are, you know, man, that does not display the love of Christ. We need to discern um, and learn from one another. And even if we maintain our conviction, it makes us more wise, more compassionate, more equipped when we're willing to learn from each other. This was the attitude and posture of Paul the Apostle. Uh, on a number, uh, I mean, I could cite many other examples from his life. I'm just so impressed with Paul. Even though he's our, the hero of our faith, he maintains such a humility, such a spirit of learning. So, if we want to be good ministers, we need to preach the truth. And you're not off the hook if you're not a preacher, because that includes teaching the truth by your example. We need to practice God's word, and then we need to progress in God's word and never give up. Let's pray. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for my sisters, my brothers here, Lord. Thank you that um, um, you've equipped us to be your church called Countryside in our community and in the world and to each other. Lord, what a, what a joy it is to serve this place. And thank you, Lord, for all the gifts that are represented in this room here and in both services today, Lord. I pray, God, that you continue to give us this spirit of teachability and, and um, a spirit of uh, urgency to teach and to preach and to practice your word, Lord, that we may continue to progress in your word as we seek after you as well. Thank you, God, for your people. In Christ's name, amen.